Hello and welcome. I'm Lisa Lancer Rose. And this is This Animal Life. Anne is away this week, but we have with us a special guest, Stephen Shaviro. I'm so excited about today's episode because we're going to talk about a creature that is not like any other creature we've ever discussed. Um, it is a sentient being, but it doesn't have a brain at all. So in that sense, it's mind-blowing. The slime mold is interesting because it's a single-celled amoeba, yet it can learn, remember, and make decisions. I'll put links in the show notes to loads of videos so you can see slime molds in action. And Stevens thought a lot about it because he's an American academic who does stuff like this. He's a philosopher and a cultural critic. His areas of interest include film theory, science fiction, panpsychism, and subjectivity. He's earned his PhD from Yale, and he teaches at Wayne State University. The book of his that we're going to be talking about um, will be in the show notes. It's called Discognition, and it has a whole chapter on slime molds. And if this gets you excited, the other chapters will really get you excited. Uh, all right, so Stephen, I can't remember when we met, but I do know it was at the International Conference for the Fantastic in the Arts. And... All I remember about that night is it was one of the best conversations I've ever had. Still, it must have been what, like five years ago? No, it's more well. The book, which has that info, came out in 2016. So it was earlier than that, a couple of years. Wow. You just held me in thrall with slime molds yeah. for at least two hours. I think I was ready to call it a night when we met. I was about to go upstairs. <laughs> And I was hanging on your every word. So <laughs> what I was wondering is, how did you first discover slime molds? Well, yeah. Well, okay. I'm, several things. One is, I mean, I, I'm not a scientist, but I read, try to read a lot of stuff about science. I'm interested in it. One of my main things I do as a scholar is I am a scholar of science fiction. And, you know, there are many reasons why science fiction is interesting. But one reason is that science fiction takes actual phenomena and extrapolates from it in various ways. So I, I try to read about the phenomena that, and if I read a novel that I like, then I try to educate myself on the phenomenon that it's kind of based on. And of course, one of the things I became interested in was just different time. I, I, I like reading science fiction, which tries to imagine other types of thought than human thought. And I, you know, there are a lot of books which have, you know, intelligent aliens who are very different or uplifted intelligent animals, which are, you know, raised up to human level intelligence, but which keep their own characteristic, but they actually are as animals. So, but there's, but there's other stuff as well, and not just with animals. So at some point I came across, I don't think this was in a book, but I came across slime molds. Wait, there was no story. You just happened upon. There is now, but it wasn't, it was after I did all my stuff that somebody wrote a science fiction novel which had slime molds in it. So you discovered them in science fiction after you, because you, you wrote about them in discognition. Yes, I, I think about, well, I mean, I, you know, I try, obviously they're different, but I mean, there's a certain sense in which some scientific discoveries are sufficiently weird enough. You can think <laughs> of them as 
So when I book Discognition, most of the chapters are about various science yes. fiction narratives of one another. And then what I did was I took all these scientific surveys about slime molds and treated them the same way I treat a science fiction novel, with this kind of weird stuff going on and involves cognition and action and doing all these strange things and a type of mentality different from, you know, baseline human mentality, which is part of what the book was about in general. Right. So I just... But anyway, so, I mean, for that part, I mostly read actual scientific research papers. Uh-huh. And I'm a novice, so I don't always understand the math. That's, you know, so I'm, I don't completely understand the papers, but I understand enough. Yeah, well, again, I mean, I so I read these science, scientific papers and parts of them I don't get, as I said, especially the mathematics, mm-hmm. which is really important in any science, including biology. But I get enough to sort of make general sense. And slime molds are these just very weird and weird organisms. Let's and talk about what they are. Are, are, okay, well, are they animals? No, they're not animals. No, they're, 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 they're completely unique. Okay, so we have three kingdoms of multicellular life, which are animals, plants, and fungi, or funguses, or whatever you want to call them, yeah. which are all very distinctive. And, you know, and everything else is usually single-celled. And, and so plants, animals, and fungi are eukaryotes, but there are a lot of single-celled organisms with, you know, paramecium, paramecium's and amoebas and stuff like that. I mean, there are lots of different types. I have seen it classified as an amoeba. Yes. So slime molds, there are actually two types, but I'll talk about one especially. But they get lumped with fungi. Well, that's, that's wrong. They, they get lumped with fungi just because of the word mold, because molds, regular molds are fungus, are fungus. But it's, um, but, it, but, you know, words are often used more loosely in common parlance than they are. Yes. There's a French biologist, Audrey de Soutour, who's, 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 who wrote a French bestseller. It hasn't been translated in English, but I read it in French about slime molds. And she just calls it le blob. Yeah. Like the English blob. So we mean, It is um, a blob. We should have so started with that. Yeah. So, um, so, okay. What slime molds are like is that they are a weird in-between single-celled organisms and multicellular organisms. Yeah. The way they, they arise is that they basically divide like cells divide. But if you have like an amoeba, when it divides, the cell divides, it's, you have two amoebas with the same The cell DNA. also divides. Yes. This, in, in animals, plants, and funguses, you know, you have sexual reproduction, but even some animals, plants, and funguses reproduce asexually. It's still like a small part of it a cell buds off and starts a new organism. Mm-hmm. So slime molds are the weird thing in between these two, which is that they they're they they do div- the cells do divide the cell nuclei do divide, which mm-hmm. usually means two cells, um, but they don't split apart. So they're like so an amoeba when they when the nucleus divides becomes two amoebas. The slime mold when the nucleus divides stays one blob of protoplasm with multiple nuclei in it. So when you get a slime mold, which is big enough to see in person, which is like three inches long or six inches long. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad you said that because as I've studied all this stuff and I've watched all these videos, I couldn't, it was so hard to believe that that was one cell I was looking at. Yeah. Well, that's the point. It has actually millions of nuclei, but it's not millions of cells that stays the same cell. No, it's just a massive cell that that can spread out. With multiple nucleuses is one. Well, I, 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 I'm actually sorry. 
I used to see them, I live in Detroit and I live in an urban area, but on the campus, on my campus where I teach, there used to be a spot where there were slime molds like all summer. So like I see <laughs> new ones every day, but they did some construction, built a new building on top of that space. And so there aren't, I don't see the slime molds anymore. Oh, have you ever had your own pet slime mold? No, the people are doing that. I mean, yeah. that's, that's the I saw. deal recently. I haven't actually done I will put a link in the show notes to how you okay, can well, adopt a slime yeah. mold. <laughs> They're doing lots of things. I mean, this French scientist has slime molds sent up on the space shuttle to see how they react to no gravity. See, the, the thing is that just as they captured your imagination as, uh, you know, as yeah. qualifying as the brainchild of some science fiction genius, they have captured the imagination of uh, musicians and uh, robotics engineers. Yeah. Um, artists. So the, the thing about slime molds is that though they're just this blob of protoplasm, they're a single cell, which also means they don't have separate organs. Like in multicellular beings, you have, as I said before, different cell types so that, you know, some, some, the stem of the plant, some the leaves, some the flowers, and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. The slime needs to be the same, to be the, the the same thing. It doesn't have different organs, and yet it makes, it moves around and makes decisions. One way, it's not like a fungus is that it moves around. It's not okay. tied to the earth the way both plants and fungi are. Which and it moves we could only know because of time lapse photography. Yeah, it it moves around and as it's looking for food and. Mm. So it's this blob which spreads along the ground, usually in damp, shaded areas. Like most people find them in forests. As I said, there used to be this one spot in my campus where they, where they just were, were flourishing, but it's not there anymore. And you could easily but, mistake but, it for a lichen or a mold. It looks multicellular. because It depends. I mean, I'm sure there's so much you, which people do. I mean, the one, I mean, the, there's only one species which is very commonly found which I could find on my campus. And that one species, it, it's all it's it's colloquial name is dog, dog vomit. vomit. I was gonna say, is it the dog vomit? It was but it's it's yellow, so it's a striking color different from any plants or mushrooms or whatever. And it's sort of, you know, it's sort of splayed along the ground. If you go back and come back two hours later, it's slight, has slightly different configuration because it's it's been moving, though it just moves really that's how you'll know it's been moving is if you come back and check. After a while, I mean, so I don't know. There are other the thing is they do have a life cycle with both with sexual as well as asexual reproduction. I guess what what I have come across is um well, in your essay in particular, it begins with what is it like to be a slime mold? Yeah. Think like. Think like. Yeah. It's... So it, the um, the part where it makes decisions or yeah. learns, there's evidence that it learns. What's really make interesting to scientists and, who've, and they've only really discovered this in the last 15 years or so okay. is that organisms think and make decisions. And, you know, what do they think about? They like, they want food. They're hungry. There's some substance they have aversions to and stay away from. They, they like to check out the reason they sprawl. If they're in a location and they don't have food, they just sprawl, they extend pseudopods, extend little parts of their blobness in all directions to look for food. If one part of it finds the food, the rest of it starts flowing towards the food source and so on and so forth. So it has active seeking behavior to find food and it has certain aversions to certain things which hurt it. Okay. Um, and so scientists started doing experiments with this and found that they, there's definitely, I mean, there's definitely a, a cognitive skill involved. 
In other words, what this means, I mean, it's sort of like, how do you know what this means thinking or not? Sometimes we think that only, you know, upper end, the only more advanced animals think. Or animals with neurons, for example. Yeah, well, some philosophers, I mean, you know, Descartes, the philosopher Descartes believed that all animals were automatons, only humans had souls. And, you know, he actually had a dog, I found out. And yet, you know, I don't understand how anybody could have a dog and not think the dog is obviously thinking and feeling and doing all these things. That's a great but, question. But anyway, uh, he, even at his time, he wasn't, other people disagreed with him. Leibniz, next great philosopher, a century later, said, of course, animals have souls. They don't have human souls, but they have their own kind of souls. But anyway, the point is, um, it's rare to think about beyond animals. But if you, if you think about, if you define intelligence or cognition or mentality in terms of being able to, I mean, the, the basic biological way to think about it, I think, is something has a certain degree of, it's complicated, we can come back to that. Mm -hmm. it, it has intelligence if it responds flexibly to outside stimuli, if it can, it can survey the world actively. In other words, we don't just, I mean, the old psychology was stimulus response, but in fact, scientists today, biologists today say it's not, it's really you know, diverse. Almost all organisms engage in reality testing. Uh -huh. They don't just respond stimuli, but it seems that all animals with neurons do this, but actually it seems more, it seems that all living things do this. So this single cellular animal, an amoeba with a multiple yeah. nuclei is testing its environment, which means it has an expectation. Can you give me a, yeah. an example of the slime mold? Well, again, one of the experiments they've done, which has been really successful, so they've had slime molds solve mazes. Okay, yeah, you see a lot of this. It's fun to watch. You put the slime mold at one end of the maze and you put a food source at the other end of the mm -hmm. maze and they're like dead ends. And basically what the slime mold does is it systematically explores the maze. If it reaches a dead end and there's no food, it just withdraws. And, but when it reaches, if it, if it finds food, then it spends, sends more of itself in that direction. And it doesn't go back. It doesn't go back to the uh, no, dead ends. Leaves a mark when it goes to dead end. It leaves a marking, so it knows that it's that that's been already tested. So when they do this test with slime molds, it turns the slime molds solve the maze. In other words, you know, you come back a day later, and the slime molds gotten the most, the only, either the most effective or the only route from beginning to end, which actually gets through the maze and comes out the other side. Actually, there are trade offs. I'm, I read one wild article which basically said that um, the psychology of slime molds is very similar to slime the psychology of human beings who are going shopping. I think that was in discognition. Yes, that's really interesting. Yeah. It's like there are two, it's like if you have two alternatives, um, one is better but more dangerous. Like like one food is really nourishing, but it's a little dangerous to get it. The other food is not as much nourishing and but it's much safer to go after which one do you choose? You're weighing these things against each other. And you know, the slime molds would sometimes do one's on the other, but they could they could, you know, did multiple trials and did it statistically, and they found the math was the same as, as the kind of heuristics by which, again, without being conscious of the math, but human beings decide. Sometimes you might go for one, sometimes you might go for the other. It would depend on circumstances, depending on how you calculate, even though you do this subconsciously. Yes, without necessarily the quick and dirty decision. It's not necessarily the most rational decision. Yeah, so so it seems the slime molds make these kinds of decisions also, and that the mathematics even comes out very similarly. Wow. There's much is made of the map of Tokyo. Yeah, and then, well, they also did experiments where they did like, they put food, they did the map of like the Tokyo, I think they also did the London yes. subway system, and they, they put 
they put bits of food at places correspond to all the stops and and the slime mold would you know would would you know follow the most best routes and so it actually replicated like the the subway map because it figured out the best routes between each of the different nodes so we can get all the food sources. Sometimes I wonder how is that, uh, you know, when it finds the path of least resistance, how is that different from water running down a mountainside and finding the stream? Well, again, what I was saying before is it's about being to totally mechanistic. I mean, water, if the circumstances would always do the same thing. Okay. Where with any living thing, it seems there's more variability. In other words, I mean, sometimes decisions are very clear and, you, you know, one would be so stupid that you always make the other one, but often there's doubt or there are different factors to weigh. Like I was saying, you know, one which is richer in food and okay. nutrition, but more risky to, to, to get to. And so the point is, which seems to, I mean, this seems to be true for all living things, even bacteria who, who sense a gradients of sugars in the water and, and swim towards it. Um, it seems that all living things to at least a certain extent are capable of making flexible decisions, meaning that you don't necessarily have if the same circumstances lead to the exact same result. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, a non-living thing, basically, it's, 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 it's not flexible. It'll always do the same thing in the same circumstances. Okay. So that variability, uh, which would vary uh, moment to moment, circumstance to circumstance, amoeba to amoeba. That's what it means to say that it's making decisions. Okay. Now, again, those decisions statistically add up, but I mean, if you look at human decisions and people going shopping, for instance, those statistically add up either also. Right. So there is a regularity to observe if you look at multiple trials, but there's a certain degree of flexibility in the organism's response. And as I said, this doesn't seem to be only true for animals or organisms that have complex brains. It's true, it seems to be true for all living things, including all the ones that don't have brains. Now, I was wondering, how um, how are they thinking? Well, we don't really know, but <laughs> I mean, one way to say it is, do we really know how we are thinking? <laughs> Some philosophers seem to think that we only think in language, and if you don't have language, you don't have thought, and that seems to me to be clearly wrong from just observation of, say, dogs and cats. They are clearly thinking, they're looking at alternatives, they're making decisions, do that. The slime mold. Um, when you look under a microscope, you can see that it has uh, vesicles. Is that what they are? I don't know. They're like yeah. they're like veins, the equivalent of veins or pathways. Yeah, I mean, there's no. It's all one big blob of protoplasm with no cellular division, but there are different internal differentiations. Right, and liquid or substances are it oscillates, and the and it's like the blood goes yeah. back and forth. Yeah. So I mean, I mean, basically, we're all made out of protoplasm ultimately, mm -hmm. which is. Though it's modified in us and in other, you know, but the but the um, but the protoplasm just vibrates and oscillates, and different chemical concentrations stream through it, and that presumably has something. When it finds a food source, it sends you know the message propagates through the entire organism. That's why the organism starts moving more of itself towards where the food is found. So that's the attractant behavior, and then if yeah. there's uh, too much light or too a puff of cold air. That's the that's the experiment that showed it learned. Yeah, because there there's certain things it has an aversion to, but they, I mean, just like they teach rats, you know, on one hand, they can condition a rat to not do something which it needs because it was connected with electric shock, let's say. And then even without the shock, it won't do the thing with this. But they had a thing where they, slime molds don't like salt. 
So they put salt in the way between the slime mold and the food. And eventually the slime mold learned to overcome its aversion to salt in order to get to the food. It, your writing is so so clear and it so well anticipates any question that I have. Thank you. So I would, uh, something would uh, arise to me, something would occur, and then you would answer it within the next paragraph. It, it, it was very graceful. But I still came across other people talking about, uh, in particular, Physarum polycephalum. Did I say that right? Yeah. I've just read it, you know, uh, that it actively feels and thinks. Well, again, I think I would I would agree with that, but we don't know. I mean, part of the problem is we don't really know what feeling and thinking mean. Okay. You know, I don't know. This is actually something, I mean, I can talk about this now because it's actually something, I mean, a lot of the time they just talk about cognition. Mm-hmm. I think cognition per se is too narrow and okay. it, I mean, it's like, think about dogs. There's certain things, I mean, my dog and most, I think it's true of dogs in general, is a genius at, at, state, at figuring out my emotional, my emotional state and figuring out things like whether I'm about to go out the door or not and things like that. Yeah. No, dogs are not geniuses at things like if, they, if, they're, if their leash gets, you know, all tangled up they don't know they can't figure out how to untangle it well mick can but okay i'm glad few can i'm glad that's great but a lot of dogs can't and i think part of the point is that there are different types of mental yeah. activities and we tend because we're analytic and scientific creatures we tend to overestimate certain types of narrowly cognitive accomplishments like being able to detangle the thing and underappreciate certain things which are also, you call them cognitive, but they're also more emotion-based than-, than Glad you said that, yes, absolutely. Able to mm -hmm. feel and sense certain things which might themselves be vague. I mean, I can't always even say, explain what my own mood is at certain times. I mean, I have, you know, I try to express myself, but you know, it's, it's often, you often feel that you can't quite say what it is that you're actually feeling. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but so dogs don't say in the linguistic terms that we use, but they understand a lot of things having to do with feelings and things which are intrinsically a little bit vague and not as linear and spelled out step by step as what we think of as cognition. But that, I mean, people call things like emotional intelligence and other things. I don't know, you know, oh. I don't have a good theory. I don't know if there's a single good theory explaining what all this stuff is, but there's a lot. You talked about there's a lot of electric shock creating an aversion. Uh, and, and a creature will learn to leave alone the thing that it needs because of pain. Um, I think maybe humans have had a similar training and an inhibition of their behavior when it comes to anthropomorphism. Uh, that probably the term itself is the wrong word with the wrong etymology. And so when we um, attribute emotional or uh, intellectual yeah, even ethical reasoning or, or reactions, um, we shrink away from that. Because I think there are a lot of things like this. We have the right intuitions, but we're not quite saying them right. Right, and it has inhibited our understanding and appreciation of other creatures. That's true even of ourselves, but it's more mm -hmm. true for things that aren't the same as ourselves. Even ones, you know, we have a very close relation with dogs and that's much closer than our relation with other mammals, just in terms of thousands of years of, of, of co-history. But, but again, you know, it's sort of like, it's wrong to say the dog has the same kind of feeling, my dog has the same kind of feelings that I have, but it's also wrong to say my dog, it doesn't have strong emotions and feelings either. And it's very, I mean, we don't have good words for that part because it's very hard to get the right words. For yeah, we need to work on that. 
There was a scene yeah. in um, the documentary about slime molds. I think it's called The Creepy yeah. Garden, which implies that yeah. the slime mold is a plant. But anyway, um, I guess there are all kinds of things in a garden. So, um, yeah. And in The Creeping Garden, um, a man is showing a, a time lapse video of a yeah. slime mold. Uh, there are lots of those, of course, in, in, the, mm -hmm. in the video. Yeah. And even some of the history of um, film and how that contributed yeah. to our insights into mm -hmm. slime mold. Um, yeah. So this this slime mold is uh, in a limited environment and it has plenty to eat, plenty of moisture. And he says the slime mold is happy and it's growing yeah. and it's eating and it's thriving. And then it becomes aware that its resources have run out. And he says it begins to panic. Mm -hmm. And he, he shows you that this is this is the slime mold panicking. It's trying and he says it needs to make a decision and it has uh, two choices. Yes. It can right. go dormant or it can reproduce. I forget. Yeah. Yes. And he says now the slime mold is, has, is making its decision. Now it has decided and it stops panicking because the decision has been made. I yeah. think it goes dormant. That's the choice. OK, it's made. well, as I said, I think I think that in different ways, I mean, there's always the danger of making it sound too similar to us, but there's also the danger of making it be too dissimilar to us. Mm. I mean, it seems, as I said, I think there's, I mean, again, it's like in, in plant, when they talk about plants, there's some botanists who talk about plant neurobiology by analogy, but literally plants don't have neurons. So there are other scientists who say that's not the right term. So, I mean, how can you, you know, I mean, again, it will never have the absolutely right term. Some of these things are just, these are our frames of reference. This is how we feel when our resources are limited. We panic. And, and yes, in the literature, plant but that's what literature and art are for also. It's stuff that can't be said in the precise scientific terms, but nonetheless has a certain truth to it. Yeah. You can say it metaphorically or indirectly. And that's, you know. The slime mold was agitated. As its yeah. resources depleted, it became agitated. Right. And then it made a decision of what to do about it, which is, again, Philosophers who've talked about this have said, I mean, there was one philosopher, David Chalmers, who's one of the best known philosophers on intelligence. And he, he suggested maybe in a very minimal way, a thermostat has mentality. Okay. But it has, it, you know, it has this binary choice on or off. But the difference is the thermostat will always make the same, you know, depending as a threshold temperature and at which it turns on, turns on. If it's heating, then it's above that temperature, it just won't turn on. And if it goes below the certain temperature, then it turns on until it reaches the temperature. So in a certain sense, the, the thermostat makes a decision, but the difference between the thermostat and something that's alive is that there's no flexibility in the thermostat's decision. Is it flexibility or is it our limited understanding of what went into that creature's decision? Like if we knew I, more. But again, do we know always why we make our own decisions? I don't think so. I mean, there's, there's always a question of levels and of degrees, you know, okay. So we cannot operate without making abstractions. And yet we also know on some level that every abstraction is a falsification because it's leaving stuff out. Yeah. Would you say that the abstraction in the word sentience can safely be applied to the slime mold? I think so. I, I, yeah, okay, this is another thing I thought, I don't have an answer to it. I, I do believe the slime mold is sentient. Now, the trouble is that these words have vague definitions, which they have to buy because we don't know everything exactly. But there's something, I mean, there's some, there, there's some philosophers who distinguish between sentience, which they admit living things have in general, and sapience or wisdom, which they think only human beings have, or only 
entities that use language have. And I strongly dislike this because it, it leads to a very human-centered thing, which I think is unjust. It doesn't give proper recognition to say that animals feel and suffer and enjoy and things like that. Why, um, why is so, that something you feel strongly about? Well, I don't know. It just seems, well, two things. One, it just seems obvious to me that other, I mean, it seems obvious to me that my dog and my cats have feelings and ideas and things like that, even though they can't speak English. Um, secondly, I think, I mean, part of the reason for our crisis today is that we've destroyed, we're destroying the environment, which we, we ourselves depend on because we kind of too easily just thought everything else is like inferior and we can do whatever we want. Mm -hmm. Now, again, in this, ultimately, you might even apply this. You might apply this to non-living things as well. You're, you're concerned about all the animals, plants, and fungi live in the river, but you're also concerned with the river itself. You might say, but 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 the point is that if we're too human-centered, which is too easy to think that we have, you know, there are obviously certain things we do which other things don't do, like being able to talk in complex sentences. Animal animals and plants and all entities communicate, but they don't communicate. There's an extra level of communication of complexity in communication, which which spoken and written language only human beings have have, which other things don't. But it's a real it, things get really messed up if you just too easily make that complacent and say, okay, they don't speak, they don't really think the way we do. They have much more primitive forms of thinking, and therefore we can take no account of them. And you know, partly having that arrogant attitude is why we're destroying the world. I mean, you know, I don't know that much about you know indigenous peoples around the world, but I mean, one of the things that's said about them is that they often have much better sense of living with other entities in their environment. They don't go out and, you know, destroy square miles of, of rainforest in order to grow crops, which will give them a big profit next year. They realize that we have to live with these other things. We kill some other things and eat them, but nonetheless, we're living in a in an ecological, you know, they don't have, so I mean, these, this is not the same as science of ecology in the world today, no. but it's, it's definitely a sensitivity about the world, about other entities in the world, which we need, you know, and, other, and which other people in other societies at other times have had. So, yeah, so I think it's important for us today to get away from excessive anthropocentrism. Or to bring other creatures into our moral regard. Yeah. It seems as if discovering that another creature has intelligence or sentience somehow elevates it, that we have more regard for something once, for a crow, once we discover that it can solve a problem or make a tool. That's why I was saying before that not all mentality is cognition. There are other things going on. And sometimes we call it a form of cognition, like emotional intelligence. But mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, I like sentience, which you, you used yeah. earlier, but I think sentience is a good word. I think thing about decisions is a good word. I think all living things very clearly make decisions, meaning that they have a choice and that there's some flexibility. It doesn't mean they have an absolute rational basis for the choice. I mean, we all, or we human beings too, we have to make decisions when we don't have any. We probably aren't as rational as we think we are. We rationalize, we find a reason for a decision later. Emotions can be dangerous, but they're also very necessary and important. Expedient. Yeah. So, I mean, we can't do without them thinking about this, you know. But on the other hand, if you don't have emotional reactions, you cannot decide anything at all. So why do slime molds matter? Why, I mean, or why do you think people are so fascinated with them, first of all? And then second of all, why should we care? On uh, this one level, we say, oh, look how cool this is. Isn't this weird? It is cool. It's really cool. The slime mold has been very clever in that we are propagating it because we have so much fun with it. Yes. 
you know, now they're sending it in the mail all over the world, if you will, on the slime mold. That's true of a lot of, you know. Orchids, dog breeds. Yes, I mean, there are men, there are the number of dogs versus the number of wolves in the world today. Mm -hmm. This is Michael Pollan, yeah. Astronomically, more several orders of, many orders back to more dogs than wolves. Yeah, the, uh, the botany of desire, he talks about that. So yeah, yeah, well, so when some of the wolves decided to cozy up to humans and become dogs, they didn't know what would happen, but in fact, it was a successful strategy for them. It was brilliant. So and we, we kill wolves. Well, I guess we kill yeah. dogs too, but we propagate them more than we kill yeah. them. Yeah. 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 So now we're propagating at least uh, a few kinds of the uh, 900 different species of slime molds. We, we have a few mm -hmm. favorites, we humans. Well, there are, they, I mean, the reason there are a few favorites because there's so much are easier to experiment with. Oh. And yeah, what is it about Physarum polycephalum that makes it so popular? It just, I mean, it's not only that they do well in an experimental situation, which others might do also, they don't know, but also once they have established them, there are companies which breed them okay. and send them out. I can tell you, I, I would, as a kid, I would rather have a Physarum polycephalum than a sea monkey. Yeah, I think they're more interesting. You know, the, there was a man that has his grand piano hooked up to uh, uh, a slime mold, and it's, yeah. it's playing the, they're playing a duet. Mm -hmm. He's got it hooked yeah. up. Um, there was a robotics professor, this is again in that uh, documentary, who has a slime yeah. mold driving a, a little robotic car. Mm -hmm. Now, what I wanted to know is, does the slime mold in any way steer with purpose? Is it going, you know, does it have a motive? Is it going somewhere? I mean, it depends on the level of translation. So certain things the slime mold is doing get translated into motions of the car or into sound. Yeah, but it's incidental. The slime, yes, that might be incidental. That's why I'm not sure. I mean, okay. I did read about an experiment where they were some lab they taught rats, you know, lab to drive little cars, and the rats love driving the cars. It's like yeah, and you can give a rat some place to go. It's making me think yeah. of um, oh, what's it called? Uh, Live Wired, David Eagleman's book about mm -hmm. um, neuroplasticity. And yeah, how, uh, and you talk about this in discognition many times, but it, in the mm -hmm. slime mold chapter, you talk about um, the slime molds method of memory that it's externalized. Just yeah. as we put phone numbers now, yeah. instead of memorizing, we put them in a cell phone. Yeah, that's right. that's so, how the slime mold knows. Don't go the, down that uh, it, dead it's end. When it goes someplace and withdraws, it leaves. Yeah, it's like left a post-it for itself it, there. Yeah. Uh, you know, been there, done that. Nothing there. Um, so if you if you erase the chemical trail, then the slime will explore it again because we don't know. That's so I mean, cool. No, it seems to seem mean to trick you know <laughs> that way. But they you know, that's one way. Like the cutting off the cat uh, with the whiskers off a cat and chasing it out of picket mm -hmm. fence, and it thinks it can go through. That's mm -hmm. so mean. Um, yeah. So, so this man with the piano, he's hoping that the slime mold begins to react to the tones that he plays and then yeah. having a collaboration. So slime molds inspire us to ask all kinds of questions, right? But one of the ones I'm well, wondering about is, does it in any way stimulate your sense of awe or wonder or uh, reverence for, for life or, or- Well, sure. I mean, you know, the point is, it's just amazing how many, I mean- Trouble is, this all includes things which are noxious and destroy and hurt us, like COVID viruses and things like that. But ever, all life, 
all life forms, even semi-life forms, since, you know, it's a virus a life form or not, it's hard to decide. But I mean, all biological entities have amazing things about them, even if there are some cases where, like the COVID virus or the malaria bacterium, which we want to exterminate because they're so harmful to us. Does it make you think, or, or does it seem to be provide evidence for the notion that there is something like sentience or consciousness in all things? That is a, that's a, something I'm really interested in, but it's a difficult question. I don't know how to answer it. So there has been, a, there's some philosophers today, as well as throughout, his, throughout history of Western philosophy, who believed in what's now called panpsychism. Can you define that for us? Panpsychism is the argument that basically some, some kind of proto-mentality is a property of all of everything physical, of everything material, of everything in the world. So it's not that mind is separate from body and they're two separate things, which is an older theory, which has been very common, which is really serious problems with it mm -hmm. to explain things. But um, what this is saying is that like an electron or a quark inside a proton has some kind of proto, we're not saying it has thoughts or speaks language, but it has some kind of proto sentience. It has, it's experiential in a certain way. It has, and that it's because that exists as a basic property of all matter that then living things which organize matter in very particular ways accentuate this. Okay. That living things seem to be much more flexible in their interaction with their environment than non-living things. We don't think of other living things, let alone non-living things as having any, they're just material which we can just shape or totally passive shape mm -hmm. any way we want. It's saying that mentality is, just another property of matter. Does that spoil it for you to think that is no. something missing then? No, it doesn't spoil it for me. <laughs> I mean, it, it, I mean, it doesn't. I mean, it's, it wasn't for me when, you know, um, there was a famous philosopher, I think he's still alive, Thomas Nagel, who wrote an mm -hmm. article called What is Like to be a Bat? Mm -hmm. And his point was that bats, they said, like something to be a bat. Bats have experiences, they're mammals, they're warm-blooded mammals, they have experiences, they, they, they fly around, they, sense their environment, they eat food and they have sex, they do all these things. So it must be like something to do that, but it's very hard for us to imagine what it's like to be a bat because bats have very poor eyesight and they get everything through hearing. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes human beings develop their hearing better if they're blind and they can, you know, echolocate. But nonetheless, there's no way that human beings can have the same kind of experience, sound-centered world instead of a sight-centered world the way bats do. So he was saying, we know that it's like something to be a bat, but we can't quite say what it is. One of the ways I talk about mentality is say, if, if it means what is it like to be something, maybe like something to be a slime mold, is it like something to be a rock? I think that all living things engage, as I said this before, engage in kind of reality testing. Yeah, What's you know, its, uh, what does it value? Yeah, so I think all living things have value certain things and disvalue mm -hmm. certain other things. Likes and dislikes are very different for ours. So a slime mold, could it love another slime mold or does it love itself? Well, again, I, not in the sense, I don't think it does in the sense that we think of it because I don't think it, because the whole point is that that requires, you know, a sense of it, of yourself as a kind of cutoff entity. It does recognize itself, not in a, maybe not in a mirror, but <laughs> what's your, your takeaway for slime molds? Um, I'm not sure I have a single takeaway except understanding how, Sentience is widely distributed among living things. There is a, there is a, I'll tell you about, there, okay, there's a science, British science fiction writer named Adrian Tchaikovsky. 
and he's written a lot of things, but he's written two books which actually reflect in this. So the first book is called Children of Time, and it's about a planet where, well, basically various things go wrong and they have a genetic thing which can increase intelligence of organisms. And this, on, they, they see the planet with various forms of Earth life, but they never get to the humans or the, or the primates. And so this, so this kind of artificial, you know, virus or whatever, which increases intelligence, gets imbibed among the spiders. So eventually you get, get a society of spiders who are as intelligent as human beings are. And he tries to write it about where he think about what would be different because spiders are coming from a very different background set of, you know, coordinates. Mm -hmm. And it's a great book. And then he wrote a sequel called Children of Ruin, where the same thing happens with octopuses. Uh, a scientist really... I have read the spider book, but I would be interested in the octopus book too. It was uh, it was an, an unforgettable experience. Yes, I know. And well, but in the octopus book, the second book, Children of Ruin, he also has a not a life form which hasn't been promoted by humans. But it turns out in one of these plants, there is a kind of slime mold like organism, no which, assimilates, which assimilates everything to itself, and they eventually have to convince it not to assimilate everything to itself because then. Basically, the slime mold, the slime mold-like organism, basically any other entity, any other life form, it can colonize. It, it basically turns into more of itself, and this can be a horrific thing for the other, you know, for the humans, octopuses, the other intelligent organisms. But they eventually are able to convince it that it's losing. It, it's it's avid for new experiences, new new lifestyles, new information. But by turning everything into more of itself, it sort of suppresses that. And so they finally convince it. They like logically, like rationally convince it to behave differently and to and to not just turn everything else encounters into more of itself because its own experiences will be richer that way, which is what it basically wants to enrich in its own experiences. All right. If you liked, well, if you liked that, which is Children of Time, then you should read the sequel, which is Children of Ruin. Stephen, thank you so much for talking with me. It's been a lot of fun. It always is. You're a joy to speak with. Well, thanks for that. And thanks for giving me the opportunity. It's fun to talk about stuff like this and to have a great interlocutor to talk about them with. So <laughs> pleasure is all. And thank you very much. Thank you, Stephen. Bye. Bye. If you like this episode, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about it and all. Um, click like and leave a review. Uh, that, that helps us a lot, actually. Special thanks to Chip Salerno for this music that I love. Thanks to Sarah K. Martin, our graphic designer, who does these very clever little illustrations for us and makes us look so professional. I adore them. We'd love to know what you like about the podcast and anything we got wrong. Um, I'd love to know because I'm curious and I want to learn more. So let us know uh, and be nice about it because then I might actually listen to you. <laughs> if you have a suggestion for the podcast, we would love to hear it. We have lots of our own ideas, but we aim to please. So if there's something you want, please let us know. We're doing this for you, you clever beast.